Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. We're talking to Gloria Alvarez, freedom fighter in Latin America. She's going to explain to us why Marx is such a corrosive influence in Latin America and what people that believe in liberty can do to connect to the next generation. Check it out. Yes, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Gloria, good to see you. Good to see you. I'm we, so uh, glad to be here. We are both in New York City because you are speaking at the Atlas Society tonight, which yes. is a, an organization sort of inspired by the philosophy of Ayn Rand. Yes. Uh, what are you going to talk about? Well, uh, they asked me to talk about the influence of Ayn Rand in my personal life and uh, the journey that I made throughout Latin America trying to promote her ideas to an audience that had, has never been exposed to objectivism or even true free market capitalism. Um, so when I first read Ayn Rand, it was uh, 10 years ago with Atlas Shrugged, and it's such an honor for me to be speaking uh, on the 10th of October, the anniversary of, of that amazing novel. And since then, uh, on my radio shows, uh, first in Guatemala and then in the rest of Latin America, I started promoting her ideas, trying to disguise them without talking about like capitalism or objectivism. I would be like, well, you know, guys, if you are looking to study a college uh, career that your parents don't approve, maybe, I don't know, you want to be an astronaut or you want to be a chef uh, instead of like a lawyer. I have this amazing book called The Fountainhead, and it's about this architect who he wanted to uh, stick to his vision on how to make buildings. And so if you're looking for good arguments to yeah. defend your cause read that book and like messages like that was the way that i started talking about um, free market the power of the individual don't wait for the government to solve your life because they're not interested in that in fact the the poorer and the and the more ignorant you are the cheaper it is for the governance to um buy your boat so try to uh look for your own path i also promoted a lot of scholarships uh teaching Guatemalans how to go online and find opportunities abroad, uh, getting scholarships to like open their horizons. And then the word libertarian stepped out of Francisco Marroquin, which is a university that we have down there that promotes these ideas. And now it's a pretty common uh, concept that everyone at least has heard of. Yeah, so it, um, in this country, um, Hollywood types are more drawn to Anthem which is her small novelette and the yeah. fountainhead, which is really about artistic integrity. Yeah. That that the the establishment, the government shouldn't tell you what your art is and you should sort of follow your own path. Uh, they're less comfortable with Atlas Shrugged because that's about that's about the the virtue of sort of entrepreneurship and production and, and that kind of thing. And they don't get that because economics is not their thing. So it's the the I, I like the fact that you're you're trying to translate objectivism into something that that people can actually connect with yes. which is what she did she wrote a book right it was a novel it was a who done it it wasn't it wasn't until later when she sort of wrote these philosophical tomes um, that that are for more for a niche market like people that really want to dig deep. 
Yeah, for me, it was very transformative because when I studied in Marroquin, you have to have uh, economic uh, classes and uh, Mises philosophy, Hayek philosophy. So I already have read Milton Friedman and Bastiat and uh, public choice theory. But when I read Atlas Shrugged, I was like, my God, this woman, she integrated everything. Uh, this book is about religion and sex and the power of the individual and the political struggle and the hypocrisy of societies that I been seen all over Latin America, businessmen that behave with their countries in a way that they wouldn't even behave with their own companies. They finance the political campaigns of people that they wouldn't hire to be their managers in their in their business. Yeah. So everything it's reflected there. And also in my personal background, my, my grandparents and my dad is from Cuba and my other grandfather was from Hungary. So everything that I read about communism in, in that novel was also the same things that my grandparents taught me about of the former Soviet Union and Cuba, which is now what is happening in Venezuela. So people are like, oh my God, you're so bright at understanding this reality. And I'm like, it's not that I'm so bright, it's that if you look at history, you understand that it's always the same formula. It's fascinating how, how vividly socialism has failed again and again and again and yet we, we continue to be romanced by this, this idea. Um, and that's, that's a lot of what, you, of what you're trying to do. Um, but before we move on, because I want to talk about Francisco Marroquina, because I, mm-hmm. I don't think that most folks watching this even know what that is. But, yes. but one of the things that Ayn Rand did in Atlas Shrugged, uh, you mentioned public choice theory, and she very clearly lays out the way that, that government and D.C. insiders sort of corrupt entrepreneurship and businesses and instead of competing for customers or trying to create a better better product you go to Washington and you get legislation that screws your competitors it's sort of public choice 101 but but she got that um, I think before Buchanan wrote his stuff I'd have to do the math on that but so she she did she sort of wrapped it all up Um, but you use the word libertarian and objectivist and public choice but but of course when we communicate with people uh, they don't know what that stuff is. Yeah. And so what is the, um, when you're talking to young people in Guatemala or in Venezuela, I know you've spent some time in Venezuela as well. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the story, the value proposition that, that you connect with them on that's different than socialism top down, one size fits all? Well, I go to the psychology and the self-esteem because uh, what I found doing radio and being in contact with young people is that the the root of the problem is that young people in Latin America are taught since they're little kids to be victims. You are always the victim of the gringos who have always invaded us and like uh, dictate our public policy, or we are the victims of the Spanish conquista, which happened 500 years ago, or we are the victims of the oligarchs. It's always someone else to blame. And also we have the component of Catholicism. Catholicism embraces poverty as a virtue in itself. So if you are poor, it's okay because your house in the heavens in the next life is going to be bigger, it's going to be better. Whereas if you're rich or if you're wealthy, that, that gets condemned. And that is embedded in our psychology. So if you don't change that and you go straight to talk about economics, they're not going to care about it. You first have to go to the core of the self-esteem of why you as an individual matter, why your dreams matter, and actually why 
the best thing that you can have for your society is being a productive human being. Because if you're a parasite and your society is full of people who are always looting from the rest, then your society is not going to progress. So I also did a lot of work on, on that, on self-esteem, on domestic abuse, on don't, don't, don't quiet your, 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 your questions about life, like try to express yourself, try to be very curious and read. And that's what works. And once you have that level covered, then you can propose the economics. Yeah, I, we haven't done enough on that. And I, I watched the left in our country, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, beats almost a single drum about dignity, economic dignity. Mm-hmm. And and I know from reading Ayn Rand and, and from just practical life that you don't get dignity because a politician gave it to you. You mm-hmm. don't get dignity because there's some program that says you are now a dignified human being. You, you have to work for it. And yeah. it's really uncomfortable and you have to strive and you have to fail and you have to do all the things that characters in Ayn Rand novels do in order to achieve something. And I think, I think that is our opportunity. Like, yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, freedom isn't free. But if you really want to have a, a flourishing life, you can't get that from politics. Exactly. And that's like the advantage in Latin America, because in Europe and in the U.S., at least there is the fake facade that the welfare state works, right? If you break your knee, someone is going to help you in the hospital. Or if you go to public schools, there is electricity, there are books, there are computers. So it's like an opportunity cost, a a competitive advantage, because in Latin America, governance and, and politicians are so corrupt that the welfare state just doesn't work so yeah. you can teach you can you can show it to people right it's like listen this is not working so you have two options you can spend your life as a victim always demanding some miracle from the populist messiah to fix your life or you go and you do your your own thing which actually most people in latin america do our informal economies are huge like 60 percent in in countries like mexico 80 percent in guatemala which indicates us that people really try to do their their own path or they come to the u.s yeah well let's talk a little bit about the context for latin america and let's let's assume our audience doesn't know a lot about it but um, the the rise of Marxism and and Che Guevara and and socialism as an alternative to the status quo is not necessarily a rejection of, of free market capitalism. It's a rejection of something else. Yeah. Well, you cannot understand Latin American history without uh, I think three things that we already mentioned. First, uh, the Spanish conquista. Uh, a difference than uh, how w- was the colonies of the Anglo-Saxon world in the United States, where private property was enforced and that equality under the law was established. In Latin America, the rule of law was completely different depending on the group that you represented. If you were indigenous, there were laws for those groups. If you were uh, African-American, if you were a son of the Spanish families. So we have never had rule of law. Always the law has been uh, like fixed according to the groups. Insiders and outsiders. Insiders and outsiders. This creates economic gaps because, for example, I come from a country where 60% of the population, if they look indigenous because there was no DNA test, you were not allowed to have private property. So if wow. you're not allowed to have private property, you don't 
you don't educate yourself economically, right? And that will create the gaps that then become the resentment of, of some voters, which use socialism and Marxism as a revenge. Now, if we move forward to the 20th century, when the Soviet Union started to try to have power all over the world, the satellite country where they spread uh, socialism through Latin America was Cuba. Cuba was the first success of the Soviet Union. And since then, in 1959, when Castro and Che Guevara arrived in Havana, they tried to replicate that model. So we had Marxist guerrillas, very violent guerrillas, all over Latin America, in Guatemala, Salvador, Nicaragua, the Sandinistas, uh, in Peru, the Sendero Luminoso. And the worst of all of them is FARC from Colombia, which mutated from Marxist guerrilla to drug cartel, right? So this was the model until the Soviet Union collapsed. When it collapsed and there was no more money to finance these guerrillas, some of the leaders that you now see in Latin America, like Lula da Silva from Brazil and Castro from Cuba, gathered together and said, we need to reformulate stuff. This is not the way that we're going to get to power, not more violence. So they left Marx and his uh, violent logic, and they adapted Antonio Gramsci. Uh, he was the founder of the Communist Party in Italy. And what Gramsci said is, you know what, Marx was a little bit wrong. The way that Marxism really uh, perpetuates in a society is when you do cultural hegemon hegemony. So this means permeate the culture with a new understanding of life, with new concepts. For example, there is the people and there is the group of the anti-people, and you can call it whatever it is, you know, like uh, the, the oligarchs versus the people, the white versus the, the, the indigenous. The, the, the goal is to polarize. When you polarize society, and you have now the dynamics of democratic elections, because that was the other thing. Latin America always had military dictators until the 80s. In the 80s, most of our countries left the military dictatorships, and we start having democracies. So now you have to seduce the yeah. voter, right? Yeah. And you have to seduce it and, and, and vote for you. But then also the Berlin Wall fell, Soviet Union collapses, and we all moved to this concept that capitalism was going to arise. True free market was going to finally happen. So in the 90s, in Latin America, you had these presidents who promised free market and capitalism, but actually what they did was a lot of cronism, and they privatized a lot of companies, but they created oligopolies and monopolies where competition was not free. In response to this, another economic gap uh, starts happening, a lot of inequality. And the first country where this bursts is Venezuela in 1998 with Hugo Chavez. Yeah. Since then until now, 15 countries in Latin America have voted democratically for socialism of the 21st century. And the disaster is everywhere. So Chavez tried violent revolution and then he became a Democrat. Yep. And he, uh, he spoke to the campesinos. He was, he was talking about us versus them. Um, uh, do you think, and, and I, I don't know if there's a is a perfect answer for this, but was Chavez always a Marxist or was it an opportunistic Marxism? No, actually how it happened is uh, Chavez makes a, 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 a coup d'etat in 1992 that fails. And then in 1994, 
um, Fidel Castro invites him to Havana, Cuba, with the excuse that they were going to inaugurate the Simón Bolívar house. Because another thing that these guys have done is they take our founding fathers, who were actually very classical liberals. Simón Bolívar uh, admired the founding fathers of the United States. But they take these figures and they uh, mutate them to yeah. become Marxists. When he invites him in 1994, he explains to him uh, the whole plan of uh, trying to win democratic elections. But Chavez wasn't uh, Fidel's first choice. He wanted Lula from Brazil. But then when he saw that Chavez had more chance of winning in Venezuela, they, they started investing on him. Uh, in the intellect. What what Cuba provides is always the intelligence, but Cuba has always needed resources. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, they opened to tourism, right? And they opened to drug dealing. And then the oil of Venezuela financed that, that strategy. And that's when Chavez starts becoming Marxist. Yeah. What's... Um what is the the alternative to that? Because I think I think a lot of these uh, successes, um, in in terms of actually democratically electing socialists, is is a reaction to something that's not great. It's yeah. a reaction to um, insiders kind of gaming the system. I, I actually think we have the same dynamic in this country. Uh, uh, not just AOC, but that entire generation of millennials. They grew up watching Democrats and Republicans bail out Wall Street. Yes. And they're like, I guess that's capitalism. Exactly. So the alternative to capitalism, well, I guess that's socialism, but but there's some problems with that. So let's call it democratic socialism. Yeah. Um, is that is that the same dynamic in it's Latin a, America? It's exactly the same. We come from feudal economies where different oligarchies in the big industries like coffee or cement or beer have had huge monopolies and they have been getting favors from the government since the 19th century. And people confuse that with capitalism. So they say, okay, it's it's the time of the people. Enough with the with the conservative conservative oligarchs that also don't want to talk about serious issues uh, that are happening in our countries, right? Uh, like abortion, uh, the war on drugs, uh, prostitution, uh, uh, trafficking of, of people. These issues, the conservatives have for decades ignored, and they think that if they just shove it down like a big carpet, it's going to disappear. So the left takes this new uh, brands of, uh, oh, if you are gay, come with us. If you worry about the environment, come with us. If you want to legalize marijuana so you can smoke pot, come with us. And all these flags makes uh, socialism attractive to millennials. So you, you're, you're like stuck in two extremes that at the end benefit from each other because, yeah. be, because socialists hate free market. And because of the lack of free market, these oligarchies can be in power forever. So it's like two aspects of the same extreme. And that's why the libertarian propose, proposal and the objectivist philosophy can do a lot to offer. That's why I wrote two books, like how to talk to a progressive and how to talk to a conservative in the sense of saying, listen, this is the libertarian offer. Neither the socialists, neither the conservatives are, are talking about these proposals. Yeah. So you went to Venezuela, mm-hmm. and that's not a safe thing to do. What what year was that? Uh, 2015. 2015. Yes. So, so things were already falling apart. Oh, yes. Tell me what you saw on the ground. 
Well, in the moment that I arrived, uh, the first facade that I saw in the airport was the duty-free. They keep having all these uh, big brands uh, posters like Chanel and Givenchy and the models. And when you look from afar, the duty-free, you see it like it's full. But when you come close, it's all filled with these like little shampoo bottles that you would see in hotels. Yeah. There are no brands. There's nothing. It's like they, they just fill it. So, so it looks like something is there. I came out of the airport and uh, a van with no plaques and completely dark glasses started following me. I, I learned that that was the Sevin, which is like the KGB of, of Venezuela. They followed me everywhere. Um, the minute we, we crossed Caracas, you start seeing favelas and they explained to me that these favelas have multiplied in the last two decades. Like, uh, Places where before there were only mountains with trees now are full of favelas. When you get in the what is what is that? Favelas is like slums. Okay, it's like slums in the mountains. So they have multiplied in in these years. The minute you get in the city, you start seeing like I guess what Rome had to look after the barbarians just like destroyed it. You can see that it was a. A, a huge uh, city with uh, beautiful avenues and parks and buildings, but everything is falling apart. Like what you see from Havana, you know, like it, there's no painting for the buildings or nothing. I arrived in a, in a hotel, one of the few hotels that still operated in that time. And they had uh, water shortages and electricity shortages, depending on the, on the time. What I also saw, uh, I went to a supermarket, uh, a nationalized supermarket, and they have military outside. So they give you a, a ration card, and you can only go two times uh, every week, and they tell you what you can uh, acquire, but then when you get there, there's nothing. Yeah. So what they do is they cover with dark plastic where the meat should be, where the cheese or the vegetables, and they put photos of Chavez. And it's like <laughs> you're sacrificing for the revolution. So I put my cell phone in, in, my, in my belt and I started filming that. But if they catch you doing that, that, that's like a felony and you go to jail. So I filmed that to, to show the world how the scarcity was, was doing. When I did my conferences, they sent people to try to boycott me. They sent this poor old man and I was uh, on stage and I tried to start my conference and he was like, you liar, you capitalist pig, you're hired by the CIA because it's always this rhetoric, you know, anti-Yankee rhetoric, yeah, yeah. which doesn't make any sense, right? Because these guys always say, oh, we are going to put an end to the United States. But suddenly when everything falls apart, the Yankees were even under the floor, you know, organizing the, the, the chaos. It's, it's so ridiculous. So what I did is, because this, this man wouldn't let me start, I said to him, you know what, come to the stage. Why don't you finish telling me everything that you need to say? Yes, I am a capitalist pig. Yes, I am paid by the CIA. What else? In the moment he saw that I was filming him, he was like, don't film me. And he ran out. Hmm. And I was in the, uh, the National University of Caracas. There were like 600 students. And also what I saw there is uh, how they condition you not by force but by fear because it was one of him and it was 600 of them and all of them were like this until the moment that I filmed the guy and he left the room 600 voices like finally stood up and they were like yeah and I was like guys never forget 
yeah. that you are more than they are. So it, it reminded me of 1984, of Animal Farm, like like you see it. It reminded me of everything my grandparents had told me, like I was seeing it in, in my eyes for the first time. When I moved from Venezuela and I went to Bogota, I arrived in the Bogota airport and it was like visiting another galaxy, you know? It's like in Star Wars when you go to a really poor planet and then in the next minute you are in a very rich planet. And when I arrived in Bogota, I started crying and I said to people, you have no idea what's going on over there. Like, and the desperation, uh, conferences that I did in places like this would get packed with young people and they were like no one tells us these ideas because even the opposition is socialist yeah. they're like vegetarian socialists but they're socialists still so i had conferences where people would step outside and be like like you know uh, uh, going on the, on the glass like this and the organization the, the people that were organizing were like gloria there are people outside that are like this and we're like do you want to come in and they're like, no 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 that's okay I, I just want to listen to her never in my life I had seen such a desperation for the message of freedom. And when you go to other countries in Latin America that are not in that situation, young people don't care. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a couple themes there that I think um, um, hopefully resonate with people that are flirting with socialism. And, and one is the, the fear of not just speaking, but thinking something other than what the state expects you to think. And, and there's, there's famous examples in history where where you had to, uh, when Stalin was in the room, the first person to stop clapping was going to go to jail, yeah. and 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 certainly Americans, but I, I think young people generally can't even conceive of, of such a such a world where where speech itself and just thinking for yourself is is not only illegal but but punishable uh, potentially by death. Yeah, and that that's very 1984ish, and I don't I don't think people buy that, but but real stories where it actually happens. The other thing. And this is very much, you mentioned this, uh, food is a weapon in Venezuela. The government uses it to keep people in line, and, and party loyalists get what little food there is, and, and everyone else starves. Yep. They, and, you know, Maduro says, well, maybe you should eat your pet. Yeah. Um, and that stuff, I mean, that has nothing to do with economics. These are basic human values that, that socialist systems just don't, they don't care. You, you don't matter in a socialist system. You never will. You you only matter if you are a tool to the system. Otherwise, if you die, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've we've name dropped uh, University of Francisco Marroquin several yes. times, and we're, we're talking about um, a Latin American culture that is that is very much um, uh, down with socialism. Um, how did how does explain what it is? And this this is where you learned free market ideas, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, so uh, an engineer from Guatemala, Manuel Ayao, in the 70s, he was like thinking, why is Guatemala poor? We geographically are super well located. We have an amazing weather. Uh, we, we produce a lot of wealth. And there were other places like Taiwan and Hong Kong, similar to, to Guatemala, that were starting to strive. So in his search as an engineer of logical answers, he stumbles upon Leonard Reed's uh, eye pencil. And he starts getting in contact with Foundation of Economic Education. Then he starts reading Austrian economics. Then he finds Anne Rand, like in, in this whole process. And he decides, all right, uh, how can I make these ideas really flourish in Guatemala? He, he considered making a political party. 
But then he said, who's going to vote for this? No one knows these ideas. Then he said, let's make a newspaper. But who's going to read it? Only the people that already know about these things is going to be like preaching to the choir. So he decided to make a university. And he rescued the name of one of the bishops, Francisco Marroquin, who established the first university of Guatemala, San Carlos, which was the state monopoly until the 1960s. And this university became Marxist. It was the, the university where, you know, all the guerrilla would form and stuff. So he decided to rescue that name and he took the color red, the, like to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to even take that from them. And what I really admire about Manuel Ayao is that all the, all the different branches that fight for liberty are well represented in this university. So you have the Milton Friedman Auditorium, the Ludwig von Mises Library, the Atlas Shrug Monument, the Bastiat Corridor, because what he wanted was, okay, yes, there's differences in between all these movements, but they all have in common the respect for the individual. And so the mission of this university is to educate people in the ethical, economic, and social principles of a free society where individuals are responsible of their own lives. So it doesn't matter what you study. You can study medicine, architecture, or international affairs, as I did. You have like these mandatory courses of economic process, Hayek philosophy, Mises philosophy, public choice in my case, law and economics. When I chose this university, I had no idea. Because in Guatemala, Francisco Marroquin is not appreciated as the unique jewel it is, you know. It's just one other university. I chose it because it was the only one that offered the, the career that I wanted to study. Uh, and then when I was there, I was actually quite skeptical when they started, you know, shoving free market in my face. I, I, I was like very ironic at first. And I was like, oh, yeah you know what, I'm going to put a, a, a drugstore. And, and my professor of economics was like, why a drugstore? And I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do in life. I'm going to put a drugstore. And every time someone comes in with like a sickness or a worry, I'm going to give them a little paper. And he was like, why a little paper? And it's like, yeah, when they open it, it's going to be like, don't you worry, the free market cures everything. <laughs> He's like, Gloria, my God. And I was like, but for you guys, is like that? Yeah. It's like, oh, ma magically, the free market is going to cure the inequalities. So I was very skeptical. It was like, okay, the free market, but why? Which I think was also the path of Rand. And she criticized libertarians, which I consider myself one, because of that, right? She was yeah. like, they don't go deep enough into the philosophy. So I needed that explanation. But then when you go to the other side and you see what totalitarian regimes do, you also understand that that's not the way. So along the years and reading RAN and also I studied in Europe and, and watched that socialist pantomima kind of working but not, then I was like, yeah, the free market is, is what really gives everyone the chance of at least try. It's, it's really an amazing place. The, the, and I've been there uh, maybe a dozen times, and there's nothing else like it in the world. Right. Yeah. Um, you you have the, the the Mises Library and the Hayek Auditorium, and and my favorite is the massive brass statue of of Atlas holding up the globe. Um, and I'm like, wow, I've never. You wouldn't find that in an American university. No, actually, a lot of American uh, uh, sponsors of Francisco Marroquin did it because some of them foresaw that in the United States, the colleges were being taken by the left. Yeah. So a project like that would be better left alone in some country like Guatemala than finance it here. The first time I went, uh, Musa was still alive, and it was a fun story because 
uh, I guess none of us had the right papers to to get through customs. Uh-huh. So he 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 smuggled us through, <laughs> and I, I can admit this now because he's no longer with us, so he won't get arrested. But uh, he always got shit done. That was his thing. Yeah, it's que that's the amazing thing because when you move in this world of freedom fighters and intellectuals, sometimes people fight a lot for little details that they don't agree on. And Musso was like, no, you know what? This is going to be a safe haven where you can all coexist and you can all learn from each other. So I really admire that. Ivan, uh, and, and you're, you're a big advocate of, I guess we would call it a, a big tent approach to selling our ideas. Um, and I, I think that's not only right, but essential because there just aren't very many people that have read Human Action. And if we limit ourselves to the people that can quote, like there might even be people on this set that haven't read Human Action. And I'm looking at Matt at this moment. <laughs> um, but that's like, and to translate that into a, a set of values that I think are very human, very common sense, like this doesn't need to be that complicated. Yeah. One of the things that AOC says that, that we obsess about at Free the People is that it's more important to be morally right than factually correct. And you sort of laugh at that and say, well, you, you can't actually be morally right unless you are factually, factually correct. But correct. yeah. well, what she's really saying is I'm going to lead with my emotions. Yeah. And I'm going to speak to people about, about values that resonate with them. And we don't do that. We love spreadsheets and intellectual arguments and, and downward sloping demand curves and all the things that us dorky economists do. Uh, we could learn something from that. And, and I feel like you're your 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 speeches are very much driven by that passion and emotion. Yes, I believe that uh, like in any battle, the battle of ideas needs the division of labor. So like if you look at, I don't know, Game of Thrones, right? There are people that go in the horse. There are others that are with like their, their spears. Others stay in the tower. We need that in the battle of ideas. We need the economists. We need the, the people that are speakers, the ones that are psychologists. We need everything and, and everything is valuable. But because there are no dragons, e exactly <laughs> the communist dragons. No, but the thing is, um, one one of the things I say in in my book of uh, how to talk to a progressive at the end is this famous quote of, "If you are a young person and you're not socialist, you don't have a heart, and if you keep being a socialist when you're an adult, you don't have a brain." Well, what I actually say in counterpart to what Ocasio Cortez is always repeating is, "Listen, if you really have a heart." If your heart really bleeds and you really care about the poor and it really aches you and your emotions are like adverse because of it, you put your brains on it. You start studying. You really commit to how to solve poverty. You go and you read history. You read economics. So there's no way that your emotions are going to be pure unless you put your brain on the task. And if you're just like, no, I'm being lean by my emotions, but I don't care about the facts, then your emotions are not real. You're a hypocrite. If you attack them on that sense, it's very effective. I love it. Yeah. Love it. Um, we're going to end it there, but tell us how we can check out more of your stuff. How do we find... Yes. Uh, well, I have uh, most of my stuff is in Spanish, but uh, currently I'm doing more stuff in English. We've done things with the ARI, uh, also with John Stossel and uh, with Fee and now this. Uh, but I'm, I'm in social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, like Gloria Alvarez. And there you can check my, my work. Where, where do I do presentations and all of that? Awesome. See you tonight. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.